Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell. National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. It's the 6th of November today. We're recording on a Saturday. And look, there is, as usual, no shortage of things to discuss from recent weeks. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has just come back from a trip abroad where he visited Rome for the G20 Leaders Summit and then Glasgow for the COP26 World Leaders Summit. And prior to that, Australia established a comprehensive strategic partnership with ASEAN. So a lot's been happening. But having said that, from time to time, the world of international affairs gives us a recent event that both captures the attention of the news media because it is just so juicy, but from our perspective also allows us to explore broader themes about foreign policy and diplomacy. And I'm talking, of course, of the ruckus that followed the French President Emmanuel Macron calling Australia's Prime Minister Scott Morrison a liar. So today's episode, we're going to focus on just that one issue. Of course, right now, as we speak, the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow is ongoing. And look, that is probably going to be the most consequential event of this year, but we've decided you know, to wait it's going to take some time for, I think, its meaning and import to become fully clear. And so we'll save our thoughts for that until after the conference concludes on a future episode. So the Macron spat. Alan, I expect all our listeners know the basic outlines of the story. As we've discussed previously, Australia ditched its contract with a French state-owned company to build conventional submarines in favour of a new agreement with few specifics but lofty long-term ambitions to build nuclear power submarines under this concept of AUKUS. The French were furious, of course, since I think it was their biggest ever defence contract in history. And of course, President Macron faces an election in April of next year. And look, we've touched on these issues in now two previous episodes of the podcast. But various things happened during the PM's trip. First, in a press conference face-to-face with Macron, US President Joe Biden described as clumsy the handling of this secret AUKUS deal, that it was not done with a lot of grace, and that he'd been under the impression that the French had been told, and that he said that France should have been told earlier, all in a clear attempt to, to repair relations with Paris. Second, when asked by Bevan Shields of the Sydney Morning Herald in Rome, do you think he lied to you, he being Morrison, Macron replied, I don't think I know. And third, in response to all this, we saw some interesting reporting in the Australian media. The Australian newspaper itself reported details of secret communications that appear to challenge Biden's claims that he did not know that Australia had kept France mostly in the dark. And the title of that article was How Joe Biden Threw Scott Morrison Under the Bus. And then we also had reporting in the Daily Telegraph and in the Australian Financial Review that Macron had texted Morrison, so private text messages, just a couple of days before the AUKUS announcement asking, quote, 
should I expect good news or bad news from our joint submarines' ambitions, end quote. And I would note that the title of the Daily Telly piece was Who is really lying in Scott Morrison, Emmanuel Macron's French submarine feud? Now, France's ambassador to Australia would then, just this past Wednesday, describe the leaking of these private text messages as, quote, an unprecedented new low in terms of how to proceed and also in terms of truth and trust. Now, when he was asked about all this, Prime Minister Morrison obviously pushed back vigorously. Curiously, he didn't seem to want to defend himself, saying that he had broad shoulders, but he was defending the nation. It was you and me, Alan, that needed defending. And, and Morrison said that slurs against Australia's integrity, would he would not put up for those. You know, he would not cop sledging to Australia. And when asked whether he would apologise to Macron, he simply said, claims were made, claims were refuted. What is needed now is for us to just all get on with it. So, Alan, there's a lot to this, but as is our way on this podcast, let's start by looking back a bit and zooming out. Can you introduce us to the topic of, hmm, what should we call it? Let's call it perhaps honesty and integrity in international diplomacy. Go for it. Yes. Okay. Well, look, one of the foundational books about diplomacy and the importance of honesty and integrity in it was actually written by a Frenchman in 1716. His name was Francois de Callière, and he was a part-time envoy for Louis XIV. The book was called On the Manner of Negotiations with Princes, and he writes this. The good negotiator will never base the success of his negotiations upon false promises or breaches of faith. Even the most dazzling diplomatic triumphs which have been gained by deception are based upon insecure foundations. They leave the defeated party with a sense of indignation, a desire to be revenged and a resentment which will always be a danger. So sound familiar? Now, I... Hasten to say that I, I, I actually haven't read to Kelly, but long, long ago when I was, to my astonishment, offered a job in foreign affairs, I quickly raced out to a second-hand bookshop in Carlton and bought Harold Nicholson's book Diplomacy to find out what I was in for it. Actually, <laughs> it actually didn't help with that, but Nicholson did quote to Kelly approvingly and the sentiment remained with me. Look, in, in any negotiations, of course, information will be withheld and the arguments will be framed in the most advantageous way possible. Whoever you're negotiating with, you don't have to tell the whole truth, but a good beginning is to tell nothing but the truth. But is that actually what happens? I mean, in your career, have the words of this 18th century Frenchman been heeded? I mean, would you say that truth even partial truth is the norm in diplomacy in the modern international system. I mean, and I guess for the political leaders that you've known and worked for, was truth the highest ideal, you know, on par with, say, national interest? We've just got to work on your cynicism, Darren. <laughs> I, would, I would say that honesty still matters absolutely to your capacity to persuade others in negotiation. A week or so ago, the AAA and AsiaLink held a joint conference marking the 30th anniversary of the Paris peace agreements on Cambodia, which were, you know, by any measure, one of the, you know, considerable diplomatic accomplishments of Australia. And we heard a fascinating account from Michael Costello, the former 
senior DFAT official and later secretary, who conducted most of the early shuttling between the Vietnamese, Cambodian government, the various Khmer factions, including the Khmer Rouge, and the ASEANs. And Mike said that the first point he had made to each of the delegations was that they should tell him nothing they did not want others to know, because he would be letting all the parties know exactly what he had been told. Diplomacy is no different from politics or business or the public service. If you get a reputation for mendacity, your capacity to shape outcomes shrinks. So I'm not talking here about speeches to the UN General Assembly or such like, where you can, you know, make all the claims you like about the great things you're doing, but the deep craft and business of diplomacy. But anyway, before we turn to the actual events, Darren, what is it in your theorist's take, which we always like to hear, that makes you so sceptical and jaundiced? I'm just, I'm just interested as to why you should think these things. It's not that I'm sceptical and, and jaundiced. I'm just genuinely curious. I sort of well, didn't want to, my question to imply that I think that politicians are dishonest in their negotiations. I was just generally curious as to what actually goes on in the minds of, mm. of leaders and, and how that has played out in your experience. Mm. Because the theorist take is pretty much the same as, as the, the take of an 18th century Frenchman and what you've just described. I mean, diplomacy as the software that enables international cooperation is characterized as a repeated game, to use the theorist's phrasing. And that means that moves you make in the current time period may well reverberate into the future. And there are many models which try to sort of explain and, and map how that plays out. The question, I suppose, is, and the debate, which is a heated debate in international relations theory, is, well, how does it matter? Like, if you have trashed your reputation, how is that going to affect your interest in a future negotiation? And the, and the debate, which I have mentioned before, but don't want to get into now, is one side says, yes, it matters greatly that your future players, adversaries or friends, whoever you're negotiating with, will heavily discount your promises, or they'll be so personally offended that, that they won't want to cooperate with you. And the other side of the debate says, no, it's just about interests, right? Like if it's in their interest to cooperate and the, the mechanisms through which you could screw them over in the future are, are minimal, well, cooperation will happen because it's just in their interest to do so. And that debate goes round and round in circles. And, yeah. and we sort of try to pin down different scenarios and different conditions under which each of those two stories plays out. The other thing I'd mention, which is you know, front and centre to how I think about this, and this is me being a repeated record, is that, of course, diplomacy is a two-level game. That's the concept that's used in IR theory from a very famous article by Robert Putnam back in the late 80s. When leaders are negotiating or lobbying insults at each other at the international level, simultaneously they are playing a game on the domestic chessboard, right? They're positioning themselves domestically. And often the reason that international cooperation fails is because it was politically unacceptable at the domestic level. And so I think it's worth noting on that point that it's not just Macron, but Morrison, of course, himself, who is going to be facing an election and possibly around exactly the same time that Macron is. So it's sort of a perfect storm yeah, of domestic yeah. political imperatives that clearly is overshadowing what's happening at the international level. Anyway, Alan, with that, with that context, let's get to these events. And I want to break it up and begin with the sort of the propriety of the matter here. You've got two big things that happen that we need to consider. One is Macron accusing Morrison of being a liar. 
And then second, we have Morrison's or Morrison's office, someone connected to him, seemingly leaking private text messages in response to the Australian media. Now, we know what the PM thinks. He would frame this as claims were made, claims were refuted. We need to move on. Is it as simple as that? Well, one of the problems is that the claims were not refuted. The Prime Minister's decision to release Macron's text message, and and that hasn't been denied, is certainly of a different order from even a highly critical comment to the press. And let's face it, I mean, just thinking about yourself, it's not hard for anyone to understand how angry you'd be with someone who shared around your private messages as part of a gotcha game. As the French ambassador said, the actions will certainly, you know, they won't stop people texting. Of course they won't, but they will remind some international interlocutors to be careful in dealing with Australia because the words might be used against you. So it was a big call. If the text had shown Macron acknowledging that he knew the deal was off, then perhaps the damage would have been worth it for Morrison. But in fact, it it showed no such thing. Even more tellingly for me, I think in terms of the, you know, the way the French responded, was that just two weeks before the AUKUS announcement, Maurice Payne and Peter Dutton had sat down with their French counterparts at the 2 plus 2 Foreign and Defence Ministers meeting and signed on to a communique which spoke about the two countries as staunch partners embracing the future, talking about our close-knit bond forged on the battlefields of World War I, stronger than ever as we embrace new opportunities to tackle global challenges. But obviously, by that stage, the Australian ministers knew exactly what was coming. It's interesting, Alan, you, you mentioned the, sort of the potential stain on or the, the doubt, shall we say, that future leaders might have in texting with Australia. And you use the word Australia, not with Morrison. And that's a distinction I think is, that's important because if I was the Prime Minister of Australia, I would certainly have different feelings about texting with Joe Biden versus texting with Donald Trump, as one example. Yeah, no, that's... that's Like a French example, if texting with Macron versus, let's say, Marine Le Pen or this new up-and-coming populist, I think his name is Eric Zemmour, I believe. Not because I want to impugn the integrity of, of any of the individuals, just I see in their worldviews a focus on interest, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, that sort of seems to displace or overwhelm the propriety of the matter, right? I, I've yeah. got more to say about this. I certainly don't want to be seen to be putting Morrison in a camp with either Trump or Zemmour, just simply saying that there, I think there are differences. But also, Alan, to take up what you said at the very end there, did the Australians know exactly what was coming? I think this is this is my point. Macron called Morrison a liar, basically straight up. Like he wasn't even framing it as his opinion. Like it's not, you know, I don't think, I know is what he said, right? So he's not framing it as an issue upon which reasonable people could disagree. He's claiming it as a statement of fact. And there are many ways of calling someone a liar without actually using that direct language. I mean, take France's initial statement saying that Canberra, quote, broke the relationship of trust. Now, that's essentially saying the same thing, right? But it's a much gentler, almost euphemistic way of doing it. But it's still effective in the sense that anyone who's paying attention knows what France is saying, but for the broader public, and this brings us back to the two-level game, 
you're not using that loaded language of being a liar. We know Morrison cares about what the broader public thinks because they're not paying attention to sort of this diplomatic speak versus the you know such stark term like liar. So that's why it's more diplomatic. Like you're being more diplomatic if you do it that way because it's it's more sensitive to the domestic political considerations on the other side. Look, yes, I know an Australian journalist dangled the bait in front of, of Macron, but look, he's a pro. He didn't have to take it. So if I'm Morrison, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to fight fire with fire. I'm going to fight undiplomatic with undiplomatic. And if that means breaking a norm in doing so, so be it. Look, he called me a liar. I have to respond with force. I mean, is such thinking that far out of the bounds of propriety? Just a couple of things. You you asked whether the Australians knew exactly what was coming. I meant with the AUKUS deal, and it would astonish me if two weeks before the announcement, the Defence Minister and Foreign Minister weren't you know, fully aware of all okay, of that. Okay, gotcha. The reaction from Morrison was by no means out of the bounds of human responses or even political responses. And I don't mean to suggest for a moment that Macron didn't know precisely the political impact he would have. Even if he'd reverted to the French language, it would have slightly softened the blow. My only point here is that there's a difference in form, I think, between name-calling, which Macron did, and leaking personal correspondence. And that in this case, the smoking gun of the Macron text wasn't clear enough to have caused Macron equivalent pain to the pain that was caused to Morrison. Mm. Okay, that's a good point. Well, let's turn then to the substance. And I guess this is where you finished off there, Alan. There have been multiple pieces of reporting in the Australian media about government concerns with the French contract, including a quote from the Secretary of the Department of Defence, Greg Moriarty, at an estimates hearing in June, where he said that prudent contingency planning was happening, was underway as a backup to the French plan. Another quote was, it is prudent that defence is looking at alternatives if we are unable to proceed with the attack class. So, The Morrison government, I guess, argues that the French had enough forewarning that things were not going as planned and that a contract cancellation was therefore always on the table. The French government, of course, is saying, we have this phrase, broke the relationship of trust. So their characterization is one of severing a trust relationship. Now, while I don't necessarily agree with him, I certainly appreciated Paul Kelly writing in The Australian quite boldly that... Macron was misled and Morrison had every reason not to inform him. So he's making a clear argument that, yeah, this was the only way of doing this. Kelly argues that the nature of the AUKUS deal, the submarine deal, required secrecy because the French would have tried to scuttle it as soon as they found out. And he says, just look at how they tried to do so when they did find out. They called Washington immediately and and tried to get the deal undone. Now, Kelly quotes an unnamed Australian source, quote, France would have left no stone unturned to upend this deal. And then Kelly himself concludes that, quote, briefing Macron would have been irresponsible folly. Alan, what do you make of each of these arguments? Either one, that the French knew enough already, or two, that once Australia decided we needed nuclear submarines, we had no choice but to mislead. I just want to begin with a preliminary point, Darren. 
One of the surprising dimensions of this whole current dispute to me is the way it has become in the public discourse here about how we got out of the French contract rather than what the hell the Australian government has been doing about the nation's submarine program. After all, under this one coalition government, we've seen first the delays and diplomatic backwash from the Abbott government's desire to buy Japanese submarines and then backing away from it. Then the Turnbull government's embrace of the French option, which was to turn a nuclear design into a non-nuclear boat, only to discover apparently, although there's a good deal of murkiness here, that it was a dud deal and a dud contract and the boats couldn't be delivered effectively. And finally, under Morrison, a shift at considerable cost to an even more expensive and in many dimensions, including timing, more problematic nuclear-powered option, all this under the one government. Anyway, I can't comment on what the French knew or didn't know. I've got no idea. But there's no clear public evidence I've seen to suggest that they believed anything other than, sure, there were problems of the sort that go along with any large defence purchase, and you just have to you know, look at the comparisons with the Joint Strike Fighter <laughs> program here to see that, but that these were in the process of being addressed. Once Australia decided that we had a better nuclear option on hand, did we have no choice but to mislead the French? I don't think so. I, I think there would have been nothing wrong with publicly announcing that we were rescinding the French contract, explaining the reasons and saying that we were undertaking an 18-month study to examine a nuclear-powered option. That's actually what we are doing. How could the French have derailed it if the Americans were already online and if this had been all out in the public domain? I don't think it could have been derailed. But the razzle-dazzle PR drama of the AUKUS launch was just too enticing to resist. With an election coming up. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> but anyway, I, look, I want to change the focus from the squabble to the consequences. We haven't seen from the Morrison government any comprehensive statement on foreign policy equivalent to the Bishop Turnbull foreign policy white paper. But I take at face value the comments that we've seen in speeches and communiques like the one from the ministerial meeting I mentioned earlier, that Australian ministers believed, and quoting them again, in the strength of our strategic partnership in promoting an open and inclusive Indo-Pacific and a rules-based international order that underpins long-term security and prosperity. So that's, you know, a statement of substance of the Morrison government's position. And if you believe, like me, that Australia does need to find new friends and partnerships in a rapidly changing world, then France, which has very real and long-standing Indo-Pacific interests, is undoubtedly a country we would want to work with. I think we talked about this on the podcasts earlier, but I, I thought one of the most innovative developments in the Morrison government's foreign policy was the establishment of the new Australia-India-France ministerial trilateral. The second meeting of that grouping had been planned for New York and it became one of the first casualties of the current dispute. 
And there was so much more that we could have done. So I think there's a real foreign policy loss here. Anyway, I've talked for too long. What did you make of it all, Darren? On that last point, I I guess what's interesting is that I suppose the way the government sees cooperation with the French is sort of through this zero-sum lens that we could either get a submarine deal that we now think is essential or we could do things with the French. And Mm. if you just see it as that, as we have to choose one or the other, it's obvious that you're going to choose the former because the scope of what we can do with French, while substantial, just doesn't cut to the very heart of of our national security interests, the way we're thinking about them right now. And so the question then is, could we have actually not made it a zero-sum lens and try to find a way to make it something else? And I think, yeah, above all, yeah, while it, it was a headline-grabbing event, it, it made a lot of news, and that's probably quite vexing, you know, as a distraction from the life and death matters that are being discussed in, in Glasgow. I still cannot help but be just endlessly fascinated by it because I actually think if you're looking to develop a theory of what I'll call a Morrison doctrine. And I don't just mean a a strategy for Australia at this point in time. I mean something that has his personal stamp, like his worldview mixed with Australia's interests. I think we have enough on the table to develop one. You know, it's, it's, it's not, it's going to be different to what you asked for or what you noted was missing, Alan, which was a comprehensive statement on foreign policy equivalent to what uh, we had from Turnbull and Bishop with the white paper. But I think taking all of AUKUS together, you know, the, the China angle, the nuclear subs angle, as well as the execution vis-a-vis the French, I think we have enough to at least have some fun, as a, or for me, to have some fun as a theorist to put together a bit of a theory of a Morrison doctrine. So let me try to to give you a little mini lecture on what that would look like. To begin, I mean, I think I should observe there is a striking consistency with a theme we've discussed so many times before on the way the, the government has handled its China policy, which is hard to say it's obviously the wrong decision, but good grief was the execution you know, lacking. So I see a real continuity there. So if I'm going to sort of build a Morrison doctrine, I think I would describe it as having four core pillars. The first is a relentless focus on national interest, and I don't think the PM would disagree with me here. Now, of course, the obvious retort is to say, well, all leaders at all times are focused on the national interest. But I do think it's a bit different with this prime minister. I'm not quite sure how to describe it, except to say that like, I think this prime minister clearly does not see himself as part of some globalist cosmopolitan elite. Like, He doesn't see himself in fraternity with or common cause with other world leaders. And look, this can have a positive because if it it keeps him in touch and attuned with the needs of the quiet Australians. But the cost might be, the consequence might be, the lack of, of interest in developing a rapport or a camaraderie fraternity on a personal level with, with other leaders. You know, foreign policy and diplomacy for him are the relentless pursuit of, of interest. And so therefore, there's not much room for developing personal relationships along the way. I mean, Perhaps you could have the same experience as Australia that France had, where someone makes a decision in their interest that upsets you, and you've just got to deal with it and move on. The second, I think the Morrison Doctrine's definition of interest, of national interest, really is heavily biased towards traditional security and sovereignty. Military threats, interference threats are given far more attention and prominence than non-traditional security concerns like climate change or other aspects of human security. Third, following on from this, international cooperation 
only happens through coalitions of shared interests, only when things are relatively straightforward, I would say. And that includes, therefore, a strong focus on the domestic. There's no room for domestic political bravery in a Morrison doctrine. You're never going to see a decision like we saw from Angela Merkel in in 2014 to let in a million Syrian refugees, Mm -hmm. for example. Now, to be fair, there are a few politicians like Merkel, probably no other ones in Europe that would have done this. But I think the point I'm trying to make is that cooperation in the Morrison doctrine only happens when national interests and domestic politics, the two-level game, aligns very cleanly on both sides. And that has the consequence of creating a much narrower scope for cooperation, which we theorists kind of conceptualize as the overlapping of of win sets. And finally, to come back to my first point that it's hard to disagree on, on substance, but you can, I think, quibble with execution. I think the Morrison doctrine would discount the merits of diplomacy and of persuasion as meaningful vectors of national power, because these sometimes will cut against the national interest. The Morrison Doctrine would say, you need to know your own people, you need to know what they care about, and that tells you what your national interest is. And once you know that, you really know that, go out there and fight for it, right? And I found a particular quote from the PM at a press conference that I think he gave in Glasgow on this question is quite revealing. So I'm going to quote him here. At the end of the day, I'm going to take the tough decisions to ensure Australia gets the best defence capability. And you've got to have the strength to put up with the offence that sometimes may cause. When you stand up for Australia's interests, not everybody's going to like it. It's not going to make everybody happy. You've got to have the strength to be able to deal with that. So what's interesting is that He's saying that nothing is going to sway from him doing what he judges to be in Australia's interest. But what he judges to be in Australia's interest and and his conception of of political bravery, I suppose, is about the attacks he'll cop from the outside rather than the attacks he'll cop from the inside, right? And so it doesn't seem like there is much in that worldview where there is a scenario where as a leader, he will need to do things that are going to be unpopular domestically but that he judges in his best efforts to be in the long-term national interest, right? And then I think that's quite an interesting way of framing it. Now, under what conditions is this going to be an effective approach? I think it's possible that there are conditions where it will be. For example, if you have geopolitical rivalry being so strong that it, it kind of extinguishes the space for creative and deaf diplomacy like we had in the 1990s and the early 2000s. Those those days might well be gone. Rather, you've got strong geopolitical competition coupled with strong domestic populist threats that want to tear everything down, which you know I, I'm sure Morrison himself does not want. So to balance these two forces, you've got to focus on shared interests that are concretely defined by both these broader geopolitical forces and domestic politics. And I do think that, you know, I think part of the Morrison Doctrine would be that if, if the shoe was on the other foot and Macron could do this to Australia, he would, and Morrison would kind of accept that, right? Like if it was in France's interest to do something that would harm Australia's interest, that's the way it goes. I don't think, I mean, I don't think he, he, he'd be a hypocrite if he, if he saw it any other way. And I vaguely remember he said things like this to the, in the past, that he expects every leader to do what's in their interests. Now, 
I've just given you conditions under which it makes sense. But there is, of course, a problem with this, which is that we do live in an interdependent world. And there are other countries who don't share our interests completely, but who can do things, maybe not intentionally at us, but who can do things that do undermine our interests. And I mean, the very idea of liberalism is the need to manage this kind of diversity, to manage different values, different opinions, and different interests. And sometimes there's going to be clashes of interest. There's going to be disagreements. And how you manage those disagreements is going to be as important, sometimes even more important, than how you manage times when there are agreements, when you have cooperation. And I think this is the blind spot, or at least the where I don't have clarity on what Morrison or a Morrison doctrine, how it deals with those kinds of tensions. Anyway, Alan, of course, I'm simplifying here and I'm possibly attributing sentiments to the PM that he would not agree with, but that's part of the fun of, of, of theorizing. And I haven't really seen anyone put flesh on the bones of a Morrison doctrine yet, so that's my potted attempt. Do you, do you have any reaction? Interesting and persuasive, I would say, Darren. In a section I wrote on Morrison in, in the new edition of Fear of Abandonment, available at all good books. There's a new edition, Alan? There is a new edition, Darren, and you can order it online from La Trobe University Press. Anyway, in the, in the book, I note that he was pragmatic and the solver of problems rather than a crafter of strategy, a conservative, but of a, a different stripe from Abbott. Then I quote what I think are quite telling remarks that he made to the Aspen Security Forum. Quote, conservatives are practical. I am a conservative and I'm practical close quote. So look, I think the things that were missing a bit in what you were talking about were, A, I don't think he would quite agree about the unimportance of personal relationships we've seen in the sort of Narendra Modi and Abe relationships, the sort of backslapping and first name calling stuff certainly has that sort of relationship with Boris Johnson, I just think it's a probably smaller cohort than others might have managed. And secondly, I think you, you're a bit dismissive, of, well, not dismissive of values, but I don't think you dealt enough with values because Morrison moves between talk about interests and values somewhat pliably. And I think there's a need to tease out what he means on both fronts. Anyway, we should discuss this further and I look forward to your forthcoming, your own forthcoming book <laughs> on the subject. Both points well taken, Alan. I think where that conversation needs to be is what happens when those things clash, right? It's easy to have a personal relationship and to extol the virtues of personal relations when there's no cost to that, either to the national interest or mm. to you in terms of domestic politics. And it's also easy to extol a certain set of values, but things get interesting when those values clash with interests and you have to make a call and say, I'm doing this even though, because I believe in it, even though it's actually not in my interests and that you know, and I may pay a political price for it. So I think our academics have this notion of, of cheap talk. We say things that, that, that they might have import, but we only really learn about them where they do when they come up and clash with, with other things that are important. Anyway, Alan, let's wrap up this whole episode. First, just getting to what Biden did. I mean, should we be drawing any inferences from Biden's behavior? I mean, was Morrison being thrown under the bus or was this just a bit of performative expression of regret to try to smooth things over with the French, but without with no tangible consequences for Australia? 
Well, we certainly learnt which ally had more clout on the day. From Washington's perspective, France has to be managed. Australia will always be there. Is that too harsh? I don't think so myself. But that's what I took there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably right. I mean, in recent years, I can't remember many, if any, any cases where Australia has been on one side of an issue and a close US ally has been on the other, I guess, putting climate change to mm. one side, with the US really caught in the middle, you know, especially with Merkel leaving. I mean, France is so utterly essential to the US's global strategic interests. I think we need to keep that in mind but otherwise yeah i think i think that's right but anyway the final point alan is the french have asked for something tangible to repair the relationship is such a clear demand for a, a quid pro quo normal I mean, and what could we give it's not an exact parallel but i think back to 2013 you might remember when edward snowden claimed that australian agencies intelligence agencies had been involved in targeting the mobile telephones of indonesia's president yudhoyono and his wife tony abbott chose to respond to the president's anger by ruling out an apology and saying he would not comment on intelligence operations the result of all that was that the indonesian ambassador was recalled for several months to jakarta and cooperation on people smuggling, which mattered to us, ground to a halt. Abbott thereupon sent a series of personal secret messages to Jakarta, mostly through former military officers. But it took until the middle of the following year for the relationship to get back to normal, and that required the signature by the Australian and Indonesian foreign ministers of a joint declaration that neither party would quote, use any of their intelligence, including surveillance capacities or other resources, in ways that would harm the interests of the parties. So yes, something is needed. I suspect nothing will happen until there's a change of either personnel or party in Canberra or Paris. But at that point, the thing to do, as with Indonesia then, is to give a signal that acknowledges both the other country's dignity and its interests. And that'll go for China too at some point. Okay, Alan. Well, let's wrap up today's episode with reading, listening, and watching. What do you have for us this week? Uh, look, I, I want you to talk to me about Substacks because I've, I've found <laughs> that I'm now subscribing to three. Ben Herskovich's From Beijing to Canberra, which you recommended on the podcast, the economic historian Adam Tooze's chart book, and on US politics, Heather Cox Richardson, who's a professor of history at Boston College, and her letters from an American. But I stumbled on all three of them virtually by accident. I like the form because it doesn't belt you around the head like Twitter, and there's more space for reflection. But at the same time, it's uh, you know remains current. You're getting you're getting real time information. So I've seen lots of references to Substack, but I can't for the life of me understand what the hell it is or what's going on here. So where should I look for help with curation? <laughs> well, in terms of what's going on here, uh, newsletters, I think, are the new blogs, by which I mean they're, they're places for individuals to write long-form pieces or longer-form pieces that build an audience and, even more importantly, a relationship with that audience over time. You know, what Substack and other equivalent platforms are doing is, is giving individuals ways to monetize that 
easily, I think. And so that's why you've seen many high profile journalists take their brand, personal brands away from places like the New York Times or, or Vox onto onto the platform and make a lot more money in the process. And it's not just journalists, though. It's academics, as you've mentioned with Adam Tooze or, or Ben Herskovich, but even someone like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the former NBA superstar, has his own Substack and mm. a lot of varied interest in life that he wants to talk to his, his fans about. And it, it gives you that unfiltered pipeline straight to your audience. And, and as I said, you can make a lot of money. I mean, Matt Iglesias, who was one of the co-founders of Vox, has, I think, over 12,000 paid subscribers who are all paying $8 a month, which translates into many hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue. And he's actually building, he gets, he's getting editors in, he's building his own little media enterprise. And you see multiple people who are able to do that. And you're seeing groups as well. I mean, some of the highest subscribing newsletters are from The Bulwark and The Dispatch, which are both conservative-leaning but anti-Trump news outlets that have multiple people writing for them, but Substack is, the, is their platform. There's also a bit of a libertarian dimension that's come out. You've got writers like Glenn Greenwald, Barry Weiss, who have felt oppressed by the institutions they're working at before. In Greenwald's case, it was his own website, The Intercept. In, in Weiss's case, it was The New York Times. And they feel that they don't want to be fettered by those institutions. They don't want to be fettered by having a good editor. They want to do it by themselves. And I think that's part of the discourse that Substack is sort of trying to democratise, I think, the, you know, the fourth estate to some extent, which I, know, I guess has some elements of truth. In terms of curation, it's hard, and it's a hard. It's hard not just for you. It's even harder for the, the the writers themselves who are trying to grow an audience and maybe make a living. And I don't think Substack or any of them have really solved this problem. I think there are three mechanisms of, of, of finding new readers and for you for finding new newsletters. And I've read that the biggest one by far is Twitter. That that's the way that that newsletters find their new, new audience members the fastest and the greatest volumes. And I think it's probably because Twitter is where the people who use Twitter are the ones who are, are most likely to be interested in long-form pieces, whether that's reporting, analysis and opinion, or the creative stuff. I mean, there's, everything is on subset, creative writing, you know, kitchen recipes and, and reviews of products, everything, right? And yeah, so I think Twitter, unfortunately, Alan, is, is the main way. The other ways are the newsletters cross-referencing each other, which is what blogs used to do. You know, you used to have that blog role yeah, on the yeah, side of, of the yeah. blog post. And so you'll see that writers cross-referencing each other and promoting each other on Twitter, yeah. <laughs> which is the way that I found things. And finally, you've got the word of mouth angle, you know, including podcasts. I guess I should make some recommendations myself then. I mean, as I've said in the past, I really like Ben Herskovich's From Beijing to Canberra because it's right in my area of research. And indeed, <laughs> the, the focus of this podcast, you know, I've definitely borrowed some of his ideas and research from time to time. So thanks, Ben. And if you want to follow the nuances and the details of Australian diplomacy vis-a-vis -vis China, I think it's essential. And I think that's one of the benefits of Substack generally is that you know, you can find people who are really working in your area and give you deep dives in ways that you can't get from the New York Times or The Economist, as great as those publications are. So in that vein, I also subscribe. And in fact, I pay $15 US a month, I think, for Bill Bishop's Cynicism newsletter, which I use as a one-stop shop for all news on China. It's so comprehensive. He also must make a lot of money over because he's got thousands of subscribers paying a pretty hefty fee. But for me, it's 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 good value for money. And there are other options in the China space. You know, you've got Kaiser Guo's and Jeremy Goldcorn's Sup China, which I would also recommend. You've got China Nasan from from here in Australia. But I've only got room for one, and and for me, that's that's been cynicism. 
a couple of others I subscribe to are uh, Andrew Sullivan's Daily Dish, mostly because I was such a huge fan of him in the, in the late 2000s. I subscribe to something called American Purpose, which is led by Francis Fukuyama, amongst others, and, and gives you long-form essays on the future of liberalism. And for something completely out of left field, there's one I subscribe to called Strange Loop Canon by a guy named Rohit, which I will link to in the show notes. Not say anything about it, but I'll link to a cool post and let listeners decide for themselves. Look, we've gone for a long time, so let's wrap it up there. That is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we thank Mitchell McIntosh for outstanding help, especially with audio editing, and also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We will talk to you again soon.